the gospel according to St. Matthew. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Friends, let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we come now to your word, we come to the teachings of Jesus. Um, and the teachings of Jesus are never easy. There's nothing normal about what Jesus teaches us. It's never expected. And even when it's familiar, even that, maybe especially that, can be an impediment to hearing it clearly. And if we've never heard it, then it can also be confusing then. So, Father, we ask that you will sharpen our minds and open our hearts. Grant us to grasp and understand, but also to see the implications for our lives, which are vast and deep and long-lasting. Father, we need your grace. Please teach us by your spirit. Convict us that that plank may come out of our eyes, that we may deny ourselves, take up the cross and follow Jesus and know that to be the joyful path of life. Amen. Amen. Friends, please um, keep your service sheets open to uh, page nine there. We're going to be looking at the uh, gospel reading. Um, now, last week, we were looking at the paragraph just before this reading. And in that paragraph, Jesus tells us that he's going to build a church. And it's a, it's a really unique church in, in this way. He says, um, it's going to be so robust that uh, evil and death and the devil can't prevail against it, which is a big claim. We talked about it last week, and the way we looked at it is we asked the question, what does it look like when Jesus builds this robust church? 
And we described it in a variety of ways last week. Now, this week, we're going to ask that same question. What does it look like for Jesus to build his robust church? But we're going to add to the description. And here's what I want to show you today. When Jesus builds a church, he designs it so that he can instill within it a culture of the cross. What does that mean? Well, everybody knows what culture is, right? Um, every nation, every community, every family, every organization, uh, we have a set of stories, we have uh, histories, we have ways of talking to each other and things that we do. And these, uh, these shape our habits, they shape our thinking, they shape our values, uh, they shape what it is that we love as a community. It shapes what it is that we pursue as a community. All groups have cultures that shape who they are. And in this reading, Jesus is continuing from last week where he's, just, he's saying, I'm going to build a church. And he's uh, describing the culture that he wants for his followers and for the church that he wants to build. And it's a very strange culture um, because it's a culture whose central story is the cross. In the first instance, the death of Jesus. But in a second way, also in a mysterious way, we take up our cross. And it's a culture, this culture of the cross, where our values and all that we do and all that we pursue orbits around the cross. It doesn't orbit around our desires. That's why earlier in the confession, we confess the devices and the desires of our own hearts have led us astray. It doesn't revolve around the, the priorities of our wider community or our nation. It, it, it doesn't revolve that the values and the habits that we do don't revolve around uh, each of us prefer, uh, pursuing our preferred life or something like that. Rather, Jesus wants a culture in the church that orbits around his cross. Or put differently, Jesus wants a culture that is shaped by cross-defined sacrificial love for him. Now, I know that's totally unclear, but look at the reading. And in particular, look at verse 24. It says this, Then Jesus told his, his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, I want to show you two points from that verse in its larger context. And, and here's what I want to show you. Jesus wants to build a cross-shaped church. And what that means is that we will be a church culture that decenters self and recenters the cross and does it again and again. Let me try to explain. Uh, first of all, the uh, cross-shaped church requires us to decenter self. Go to the story. Um, and you need to think back to last week. So just before this reading, um, there was a big reveal moment. So Jesus is talking to his disciples, the 12 closest followers. And he says, who do people say that I am? And, and they had a lot of different answers for that. But then Jesus says, yeah, yeah, I know. But who do you say that I am? And immediately Peter jumps up and he says, I know who you are, Jesus. You're the Christ, meaning you're the Messiah. And then he adds, you are the son of the living God. Now, if you've been around church for any length of time at all, 
all of those sound really conventional. It's like, well, of course, he's the Messiah and the Son of God and the Christ, you know? But no, at that time, all of those statements were jaw-dropping in their implications. Because what it meant is, and undoubtedly, Peter and the disciples actually quite clearly, they didn't know all the details. But at some level, they knew that in calling Jesus the Messiah and the Son of the living God, they were saying that Jesus isn't just a rabbi. He's not somebody that just teaches us about life or even just merely teaches us a little bit about God from a distance. Rather, they, in some ways, though they weren't clear, in some ways they were saying Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, meaning he is God's personal intervention into the evil of this broken world. It was a jaw-dropping moment with jaw-dropping implications. And Peter gets all kinds of kudos for being the first to see it and the first to say it. But that's the moment immediately when it all goes sideways for Peter. Because Jesus maddeningly starts talking to his disciples about his death. That's what verse 21 is about. Now, I'll paraphrase it. It's as if Jesus says this. Okay, disciples, now that you know that I'm the Messiah, lean in. Here's the plan. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And I, I imagine all the disciples leaning in going, yes, he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to kick out all the bad guys. And Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And they lean in and he says, and there I am going to be killed by the Romans and by the religious leaders. They're going to ally together against me. I'm going to die. And then three days later, my father is going to undo my death and resurrect me. And in my, in my imagination, all the disciples kind of look at each other and they're thinking something like, Jesus, I understand all the words that you used, but when you put them all together in that way, all I hear is jumble, 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 jumble. I have no idea what you're talking about. And in the midst of that total confusion by the disciples, because it didn't fit any of the categories, Peter jumps up and in my mind, he says, okay, time to lead, right? And he takes Jesus aside and he says, listen, Jesus, I didn't want to say this in front of everybody. So come here. But listen, um, Jesus, this, um, this death plan of yours, we need to take that and set that aside. Um, we need to get you back on message, Jesus, I imagine Peter saying. Because Jesus, you're the Messiah, and we're all excited about that. But everybody knows dead messiahs don't do any good. And besides that, because if Peter says, hey, listen, I left my fishing business and like all the other, everybody else left lots of things for you too. And nobody likes a death cult. So we're going to get you back on message, snap out of it, start talking like the Messiah that you are. And then what happens next is huge and brutal. Look at it. Verse 23, feel the bite. Jesus turns and he says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Now, that is brutal language. I mean, he calls him the devil. Why is Jesus so brutal, sharp with Peter, who moments before, verses before, he's saying, you're Peter and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Why? Why is he so brutal? Direct, sharp. Well, keep thinking about Peter, but jump forward in his timeline. It was a few months later, maybe it was a year later, 
they get to Jerusalem and it all starts happening just like Jesus said. Uh, the religious leaders and the Romans, they pool together, they ally together, they arrest Jesus and they kill Jesus. And interestingly, as Jesus's death approaches, Peter's behavior starts going erratic. So one moment he's violent and the next moment he's utterly cowardly. So for instance, when Jesus, the moment Jesus is getting arrested, so the folks gather around him, they start uh, taking Jesus into custody. Peter tries to play the hero and he pulls out a sword and he unimpressively cuts off a guard's ear. Now, I've always wondered, was he aiming? I don't know. But in any event, Jesus shuts it down right away. And he says, put that sword away. And then he heals the man's ear. But in that moment, Peter was violent. But then just a few hours later, the same Peter who had played the hero apparently in his violence becomes utterly cowardly. And he denies that he knows anything about Jesus like three different times. Now what's going on there? It's, it's odd. Why does one of Jesus's most devoted disciples completely fall apart as Jesus's death on the cross looms closer to him? Well, part of the clue is in our reading, verse 25. Jesus says this, whoever will save his life will lose it. Now that sounds crazy. Let me try different words. Whoever prefers self above all will lose it in the end. Now keep that in mind and go back to Peter because just imagine for a minute that you could zoom into Peter's heart. I know that sounds weird, but just try it. And imagine you could find the part of Peter's soul where he keeps his, his deepest preferences, his deepest desire, his foundational priority. Imagine that you could find that in Peter. If you saw there, you would find that Peter prefers above all other things, Peter. Self is central to Peter. It's on the throne of his heart. Now, some might say, maybe you're thinking, well, that, that's not that normal. We all prefer self if we're honest at all. And, and, and if you say that, isn't that normal? Well, you're, you're right. But it's also part of why Peter is so repulsed by the cross. As soon as Jesus starts talking about the cross, Peter gets really, really nervous. Um, and, and part of that's because his deepest priority, self, on the throne of Peter's heart, starts feeling threatened, starts to quiver with fear. And then when Peter sees Jesus literally going to his death, his soul, self, on the throne of his heart, just becomes desperate to preserve himself. What do I need to do to preserve self upon Peter's throne? And so one moment he's violent, and the next moment he's cowardly. But the thing that's consistent all along is he centered on self. And in our reading, Jesus can see right through Peter. He can see right into his heart. And he says, Peter, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. You know, friends, it might, Emmanuel, it might be normal to live centered on ourselves, but remember that Jesus never called anyone to normal. 
And Jesus sees through Peter, but Jesus can see through you and me too. Don't ever imagine that he can't. And it's concerning that Peter can live for years as a disciple of Jesus, one of his closest, without ever decentering self from the throne of his heart. And the problem is, you see, here's part of why Jesus rebukes Peter so harshly. If our deepest priority is self, then the day will come when we will, we will shatter, that will shatter our relationship with God. It happened with Peter and Jesus. When Peter denied Jesus, there's this moment after he denied Jesus three times, the rooster crowed, you probably heard the story. And in that moment, Peter's eyes and Jesus's eyes locked on each other. And it was a brutal moment once again, because Peter in that moment, he knew with a flash of clarity that his relationship with Jesus had been shattered. Peter had saved his physical life. He had preserved his physical life, but he had sabotaged the relationship that animates all of life and that gives it meaning. He had saved his life, but he had lost it. All that he had left was a kind of living death. Shattered relationship with Jesus. And that's part of Jesus' warning in our reading. Verse 26, what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world but forfeits his soul? You know, I mean, we can live for centered on self, right? And if we do, we might do really well by certain measures, right? It's part of why it's alluring. I mean, you might achieve all your ambitions. I might too. But the trouble is that we were all of us made for more than just ourselves. And deep down, everybody knows that. So that even if we get it all, but in the process, lose the relationship that animates all of life, the, life, the, the relationship for which we were designed, a relationship with God, if we lose and sabotage the relationship that animates all of life, then in the end, we'll be like Peter. We will end up living a kind of living death. And one day, Emmanuel, one day we will lock eyes with Jesus just like Peter did. That's part of what Jesus is talking about in verse 27. Jesus promises that one day he'll return um, and he will judge with justice. He will give us the just reward for our works and our preferences. And he will look into our eyes. And Emmanuel, you will, we will all of us look into the eyes to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden. And the great danger of that day will be that the Lord will reward us with what it is that we've preferred. And if we don't prefer him, he will give us ourselves. But the living death of this life, a life where we've sabotaged the relationship for which we were made, the living death of this life will just end up being the first breath of an eternal destiny. And the point is self-centered life might be normal, but that doesn't mean it's good. It doesn't mean it's safe. It's not. 
And Jesus wants his church to be a culture that decenters self and recenters his cross. Now, why? Why is the cross the antidote? Well, look at verse 21. The beginning of the reading, do you notice how Jesus says that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer? Now, why? Why must he do that? I mean, it's very strong. There's at least two reasons why Jesus must go to the cross. And the first is that the cross, Jesus embraced the cross because Jesus willingly embraced costly obedience. And here's what that means. Jesus was always decentered from self. He wasn't preferring himself. Rather, Jesus was always centered on preferring God and God's desires, his father. And God the Father wanted Jesus to go to the cross. It was part of the plan. And Jesus wanted to do what his father wanted. And there, therefore, the choice to go to the cross was a willing embrace of costly obedience. Jesus obeying his father. But why did God the Father and Jesus think that the cross was a good idea? Well, that brings up the second reason why Jesus must go to the cross. Jesus must go to the cross because he had a mission. He went to the cross to suffer and die as a substitute for all of us who center ourselves, who live for ourselves. Remember what we were just saying, and Peter experienced, living for self leads to a living sort of death. And eventually that pattern locks us into an eternal destiny beyond this life. And God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ, agreed on a plan to rescue us. And that rescue was costly. It required a costly obedience. It required Jesus to die the death that our self-centered sin deserved. And then it required that after Jesus' resurrection, God the Father gives us a life that only Jesus deserves. It's an exchange. Jesus has a relationship with God the Father that's perfect. It's the relationship that animates all of life for Jesus. And Jesus never betrayed that relationship. We betray it, all of us, all the time. Jesus takes our death in order that he can give us his life, a relationship with God, his Father, who can animate all of our life. And you see, friends, the moment that you really trust in Jesus' rescue for us, in his cross, in his death, and in his resurrection, the moment we really trust ourselves to that rescue, self gets dethroned from our heart. And you think, oh, how does that happen? Well, go back to Peter. So after Jesus rose from the dead, um, Peter and Jesus met up. And it was awkward. And their eyes locked again. Actually, their eyes didn't lock. Jesus looked at Peter. Peter's eyes darted away in shame. But that's because Peter did not yet understand that Jesus had died the death that Peter's denial deserved. And therefore, after Jesus' resurrection, they took a walk on the beach of the Sea of Galilee. You can read about this in Gospel of John, chapter 21. And Jesus reaches out to Peter to give him the life that only Jesus can give. 
And in grace, Jesus restored Peter and Jesus forgave Peter and Jesus reconciled Peter to himself and created a new robust bond of love. And it was as Peter was loved by grace into the epicenter of his worst shame that self was dethroned from his heart. And Peter recentered his life upon the cross of Christ. And beginning at that moment, it wasn't perfect, we'll see that in a minute, but beginning in that moment, his life began to orbit not only, not, no longer around himself or self-preservation or his own desires or his preferred identity, but rather around the cross of Jesus Christ. His life became animated with the relationship that was purchased by Christ at the cross. And guess how, did it change him? It totally changed him because it motivated Peter to then pick up his own cross and follow Jesus. What does that mean? Well, it meant from that point on, Peter began to act more like Jesus. He willingly embraced a costly obedience. That's what taking up our cross and following Jesus means. He eagerly shared Jesus's rescue with other people who had shattered their relationship with God just like Peter had. And Peter did that in lots of different ways, but let me give you one example. Um, years later, Peter is the top leader in the church, this community, this culture shaped by the cross. And it's a long story. You can look at, look at it in the, in, the, uh, in, in the book of Acts. But Peter has a dream. I can't go into all the details, but through this dream, Jesus directs Peter to go and invite a guy called Cornelius to become a follower of Jesus. But here's the problem. Cornelius, some of you know this story, Cornelius was not Jewish. Cornelius was a Gentile. And not only was he a Gentile, he was a Roman. And not only was he a Roman, he was a Roman soldier. And not only was he a Roman soldier, he was a centurion. He's like the worst kind. He was the kind that Peter had previously hoped that he could take a sword to and maybe not just cut off an ear. Cornelius was Peter's cultural opponent. And at this point, no Gentiles were Christians yet. And so this call to go to Cornelius and go into his house, and it was totally unpleasant. Uh, Peter knows that he's going to take serious heat for this from others in the church because he's fraternizing with Gentiles, and he does take heat. So there's this huge ethnic and cultural and tribal and religious barrier between Jesus and Cornelius. Now, in that context, if Peter was still prioritizing self, then he wouldn't go. He'd come up with a good defensible excuse for why he couldn't go. But Peter doesn't do that. Instead, he takes up his cross. He willingly and even joyfully embraces a costly obedience. And Cornelius and his family become part of the church of Christ. And the result is that the Christian church becomes this multi-ethnic movement that spreads around the world and transforms billions of lives by the cross over the past 2,000 years. It was a pivotal moment. But can you see how it happened? Peter experiences how Jesus gave all that Jesus is for Peter when Peter didn't deserve it at all, deserved the opposite. And when Peter saw Jesus giving all that he is to Peter, Peter responds by giving all that he is for Jesus Christ. And in that moment, he gained real life, the relationship that animates all of life. And in the process, as he lives for Jesus Christ and for his mission, Peter got the privilege of being able to help build a community of reconciliation in a society just as divided and violent as our own.
What a privilege. You see, denying self, taking up our cross and following Jesus is not just how individuals get to go to heaven. Though make no mistake, we will not get there without it. But it's also how we become agents of peace in a world of hate. And don't you feel how important that is? Every day we look at the news. And I can't help but lamenting, and we should, we must. We must not become callous to the tragedies around us. But one of the most important things that we can possibly do, indeed the most important, is that we might become a culture of the cross. That we would start by looking at our own hearts, at our own self-centered sin, and maybe in particular, look for those areas of life when you just rage with anger. When don't, doesn't that happen to you? And where do you cower in fear? That's often a sign that self on the throne is under threat. And there we look at our own hearts and we see our self-centered sin and we do not deny it. We don't justify it. Please let's not cover it. No, see it and own it and confess it so that Jesus Christ can unseat it and recenter us at his cross. And there, looking at Christ on taking up his cross, then we will want to take up our cross so that the, we can make the cross the story that defines our identity, that we can make the cross the story that defines our life mission. And it's gotta be a culture. And why I say it's gotta be a culture is that none of us can do this in an isolated manner. This is not an individualist thing. It takes a church to make a disciple. And where did you get that from, Jim? Well, Peter needed a church. So if you go yet further out in the future of his life, there comes a point in Galatians chapter 2 where Peter starts to walk back his fellowship and his intimacy with the followers of Jesus who are Gentiles. He, 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 under pressure from some of the Jewish leaders, he, he begins to eat only with Jewish Christians and not eat with Gentile Christians. He begins to walk back. And it's a little bit like Peter's heart slyly tries to put self back up on the throne. But thankfully, Peter was part of a church. And one of the brothers in the church was a guy called Paul. And Paul rebuked Peter just like Jesus rebuked Peter so many years before. And it was a mercy. And that's what the culture of the cross does. It's when the church becomes an alliance, constantly helping each other to decenter self and to recenter ourselves upon the cross of Christ. That is the story that must define us. And that's the church that Jesus wants to build, Emmanuel. And I want to see Jesus take us much further. Don't you? I want to see how Jesus is going to ask us in these days, in these days that are so full of grief, how will Jesus ask us in this day to take up our cross and follow him? Can you think of a more important thing for us to do? Can you think of a more important thing for the church in the, the United States to do? Can you think of a more important thing for the church of the world to do, but to take up our cross in a joyful, willing embrace of a costly obedience? 
and to find ways of serving other churches in our city, to learn from them, to love them, to, to see if there's anything that we can supply to them. I want to see how Jesus wants to make us um, deeply engaged in the pain of this world and yet never defined by its patterns. I want to see how Jesus is going to make us a counterculture that doesn't fit into anybody's party, doesn't fit into anybody's tribe, but defying all norms, joyfully serves and loves our cultural opponents, not blessing what they do when it is against the glory of God, but rather loving them and always inviting them to a life animated by the cross of Christ. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great if the world could look at us and say, how do we make sense of that church? How do we make sense of these people? And then eventually they come to the conclusion that the only way that we can make sense of them is if we look at the son of God hanging upon the cross for the life of the world. Emmanuel, we get to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Amen.